0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the JNotes Blast Podcast. This is your host, Jared Woodcox, and you know I really do feel like we have a blast of a show in store for you guys today. I had mentioned the last show that had some really exciting stuff up ahead, some good content, and um, I think you'll find a lot of that today. My plan is to talk you know, exclusively about the Western Conference today, and three points on the agenda are first, I want to talk about some of the surprises in the Western Conference that took place this summer, uh, the surprise additions, the trades, the changes, and things along those lines. From there, I'm going to try to do the impossible and predict the standings uh, in the Western Conference this regular season, which obviously is going to be no easy task given all of the, the changes that took place. And then for the last point, um, just to have a few thoughts about the Western Conference as a whole that I wanted to get out and explain to you guys. And I think you'll find some of the numbers and things I'll share there. Pretty exciting. So really looking forward to the show and the agenda today. Before I dive in, though, I just got to say, you know, last show I told you guys that it was worth your while uh, to be watching the big three. Um, I was at the Big Three in Salt Lake City. It was a great time, great event. And then I don't know if you guys saw it today. I hope you didn't miss it. But uh, Joe Johnson uh, for triplets hit a huge four-pointer to win the game, and it was incredible. So I'm just going to reiterate once again, I hope you guys are watching Big Three. It's a great way to fill that basketball void during the summer, and uh, it's, been a, it's been an absolute joy for me to watch. So anyway, I know that was kind of a side note, so we'll jump into the show now, uh, starting off with some of the surprises in the Western Conference. So I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, the landscape in the NBA has changed quite a bit, especially in the Western Conference. Uh, There were a lot of big moves, um, a lot of new dynamics on different teams. And I'm actually really excited about what the season holds just because really it seems like there's a lot more balance. Uh, You know, there's a lot of exciting teams. Um, but no team that is just overly dominant like we've seen the past few years. And so I really think the twenty nineteen-20 season could be a lot of fun. Um, you know, some moves were obviously, you know, less surprising than others. Uh for example, Anthony Davis, the Lakers was big, obviously a very big move that could change the shift of power in the West. Um, But I think none of us were too surprised that it did happen. Um, I know I personally figured that at some point it was likely going to happen. I didn't think the Pelicans could really resolve the issue there with Anthony Davis. And then at the end of the day, you know, the Lakers were probably going to be the ones most desperate to get him. And so, you know, while again, like I said, that one was huge. It didn't exactly surprise me all that much. For a little while, I thought maybe he could get traded somewhere, sort of like you know Kawhi did to the Raptors or Paul George did to the Thunder. Just some team we didn't see coming would would get into the mix. Um, but at the end of the day, obviously he went with the Lakers, which as I said wasn't that surprising. Um, you know, then there was Kawhi Leonard, which again in some ways wasn't all that big of a surprise. I, I think that you know there was sort of this this narrative and this belief that the Clippers were a team he had been he had been eyeing for a while. Um, But, of course, the way his free agency went down was a huge surprise. I mean, essentially, he had the whole entire league on pause until he made his his big decision. And then what really was was the surprise is after the announcement came that Kawhi was going to the Clippers... Um, you know, all of a sudden, we get this news that they were going to be able to get Paul George as well, and that was just absolutely mind-blowing, a, a huge surprise, and, you know, obviously there wasn't much of a gap to process Kawhi going to the Clippers, um, and, and, then, and then between that when we knew that Paul George was also going to the Clippers, there wasn't much of a gap there, um, but originally when I saw, okay, Kawhi's going to the Clippers, my first thought was, well, this is great, I was glad he wasn't going to the Lakers, um, but him going to the Clippers, I really felt like, okay, well, obviously the Clippers just got a lot better, but don't know that they're going to be, you know, this indomitator force just with Kawhi, but then the second they added Paul George as well, uh, that kind of went out the window because I felt like by adding both of those guys, obviously the Clippers are going to be a very, very impressive team. Um, they are the projected favorite to come out of the Western Conference right now, which is no surprise given that Kawhi Leonard, you know, is the is the reigning Finals MVP. Paul George was an MVP candidate this year, and they have a lot of players that are really awesome there as well. Um, I do think they'll miss, you know, especially Shea Gilgis Alexander that they traded uh, to the Thunder. But overall, obviously the Clippers got significantly better and they are going to be very much in the mix for a championship. So the fallout from that, with uh, Paul George being traded to the Clippers, was obviously Westbrook being traded to Houston uh, for, for Chris Paul for CP3. And I don't know about you guys, but this one really took me by surprise. I know we had, you know, seen that Houston, of course, Daryl Morey's always wanted to be aggressive, but we had seen that Houston was going to try to get in the mix for some sort of star. Um, originally, it was thought they might go after Jimmy Butler, um, but still, I didn't, I didn't really know that they would be able to get this done. I didn't see it coming at all, mainly because I didn't really think that anybody would be serious about, um, you know, taking on CP3's contract. But of course, after the Paul George trade, it was obvious that the Thunder were you know really looking to add to their their treasure trove of assets. Um, They got a ton of draft picks back from that original trade. And so then to to get Chris Paul but also get additional assets uh, along with that um, just made a lot of sense for them. And um, it's crazy to think that Westbrook and Harden are now reunited uh, once again, this time in Houston. And it's going to be really interesting to see how those two pan out. More on that uh, here shortly. Um, And it does look like Chris Paul is going to be staying with Oklahoma City, at least for now and, and probably when the season starts. Um, but I do think they're going to have to trade him eventually just because I don't see how he fits in their master plan whatsoever. Um, but that was obviously an extremely surprising move that, that definitely caught me off guard. Um, on a jazz note, uh, this one wasn't exactly a huge splash or anything. It's not going to be a transcendent change. Uh, but Ricky Rubio going to the Suns was one that really surprised me. Obviously, there was a lot of buzz that he'd be going to the Indiana Pacers. Um, and, but but last second, there was a shift there as the Pacers added Malcolm Brogdon. Um, but, you know, I wish, the, I wish Ricky nothing but the best. I hope he can have a good influence while he's in Phoenix. And, you know, I, I do worry a little bit about him getting discouraged. I mean, he really is a guy that wears his emotions on his sleeve. And we saw at times with the Jazz, he would get down after a loss, or, or I think a lot of times when there were fans complaining about him, um, or obviously when he was put on the trade block. We really saw this in his demeanor and in his responses that it did affect him. And, you know, he's finally gotten used these past two years to being a part of a winning program, a playoff team. And now he's going to the Suns where, you know, obviously they're they're a far cry from being anything close to that as far as, you know, having that playoff success. So I hope he doesn't get discouraged. I hope that he, you know, just realizes what he's up against and and embraces that role and and can have a positive impact there for them for the future. Um, another one that really surprised me was D'Angelo Russell to the Warriors. Um, again, it was it was surprising how that one went down, and just overall surprising result. Um, the Warriors deserve some major kudos though for you know being as crafty as to get something out of KD. Um, obviously, KD was out of there at the end of the day, and, and it's very likely that this was very much a mutual agreement, you know. But still, the fact that instead of him just walking, they were able to to swing D'Angelo Russell, an All Star, out of the deal. Um, it's pretty impressive by all involved there. So, my biggest thing with with uh, Russell, it's going to be interesting to see how he fits with Curry. Um, and, and it was kind of interesting as well because it seemed like, you know, for a while there that Russell was going to team up with Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota. Um, but obviously, once the, the Warriors put together this sign and trade with KD, um, it all came together that they would get D'Angelo Russell. So, very interesting situation there and, and definitely caught me off guard. Um, another one was was the Pelicans and the fact that they were able to get uh, J.J. Reddick and also our very own Derek Favors. Who you know? Quite frankly, I'm pretty sad to lose. Even though I get it, it all makes sense. What the Jazz are doing, what Faves is doing, um, but but in short, it was really surprising to me to see that the Pelicans were able to add such such good veterans, really. And and I think that the um, you know the Pelicans have some really solid pieces. Um, despite being an overall young team, it's gonna be fun to see how those those veterans fit. And last but not least, let, let's not forget about the Jazz themselves. You know, I'd say they really had a pretty surprising off season. You know, we're used to the Jazz having kind of a quiet summer. You know, maybe one or two additions, some that make you say, "Well, hopefully he you know helps us, or hopefully he's good." But obviously, you know, this year they really bucked that trend, and and they took some big risks. I mean, you typically hear fans complaining about the Jazz being too conservative or not doing enough, um, but that wasn't the case at all. Obviously, there was the Mike Conley trade. There was moving Derek Favors to add uh, Boyan Bogdanovich. Uh, But most importantly, you know, they they got some other big and well-respected names outside of those. Um, that you know, despite the typical culture and the reputation the Jazz have for not being able to lure free agent talent, um, you know they got guys that are pretty recognizable and pretty upstanding in the league, such as Ed Davis, Jeff Green, um, and to a lesser extent Emmanuel Mudiay. But still, a guy that if you had told me last year he would actually want to come sign with the Jazz, I, I would have never believed you. Um, so it was really cool and, and really great just to see the Jazz, you know, buck that trend. Like I said, and that really was a big surprise for me and an exciting one. Okay. So now that I've set that table, um, like I said in the intro, I'm going to attempt to do the impossible. Looking at all these teams and the changes that have been made, I'm going to do my best to predict the Western Conference standings for point two. Point two. Okay, so before I jump into this uh, projection for the standings, I, I do want to put in a little bit of a disclaimer that what I'm going to attempt to do here, and, and again, if, if I'm right, uh, I guess I should go buy a lottery ticket because this is going to be an extremely hard exercise, but I'm just going to try to predict what I think the regular season standings will be in the Western Conference um, you know, when the season comes to a close and when we, when we enter postseason play. Because honestly, trying to figure out what is going to happen you know, come playoff time and who's going to be ready for that is just just—it's way too premature for that. It's a whole different animal. I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that in in point three today. Um, But anyway, just to make clear, this is my my regular season projections. And you know, one sign for me that the NBA is going to be really, really great next season is just how hard this was for me. I I waffled back and forth a ton, I switched teams around, and really a ton of them I still don't feel super comfortable. It, It just really is kind of a jumbled mess. Um, but, but I'm going to do the best I can here. So starting from the bottom and working my way up, um, I'm going to do 15 and 14 simultaneously. At, at 15th in the West, I have the Memphis Grizzlies, and at 14th, I have uh, the Phoenix Suns. So the reason I wanted to tackle these two at once is because I honestly debated back and forth between these two. I kept flip-flopping between, okay, which team is going to be worse? Um, obviously, they, they're both in in you know very interesting phases where Memphis has really traded away all of their you know historically. Key pieces like Marcosol last year, now Mike Conley to the Jazz, and they're in full on rebuild mode. Um, the Suns have, have been hypothetically in a rebuild for years, but they just can't seem to turn the corner at all. And, and I, I don't think they're going to be very good again this year. Um, however, when it comes down to it, I do think Memphis will be the worst of the two teams. And, and the reason I think that is one, um, you know, Memphis doesn't have a ton of motivation to win because um, their their draft pick in twenty twenty is actually top six protected. So if they can land that top six pick, they'll keep it. Otherwise, that pick will go to the Boston Celtics. Um, so the, the worse they do, and the better they can increase their odds, um, you know of finishing within the top six in the draft lottery that'll ensure that they can keep that pick um, well then again some some say that maybe they'll actually want the sox to get this one so they're not worried about their 2021 pick that's a whole other story end of the day obviously memphis is not too worried about winning games right now and they have a young core that they want to see develop and get better meanwhile in phoenix you know they, they did add some nice vets um, that i think could help them out quite a bit one of them is obviously ricky rubio also, you know, Dario Saric, Aaron Baines. And obviously these guys aren't, you know, they're not players that are lighting the world on fire. They're not gonna push the Suns to being a playoff team. I mean, I still have Phoenix 14th after all. But they are guys with experience, they're guys with confidence, they're guys that wanna win and compete. And when I look at the Suns, you know, I look at a team that has to be sick of, of losing and being at the bottom of the conference. And while 14th isn't much better, I do think they will be they will be motivated. Um, they'll be inspired by some of these vets that, that may help some of these young guys get better. And, and the Suns have bottomed out long enough. I, I do think that they will be a little bit improved this upcoming season. They'll want to win as hard as those wins maybe to come by. They'll want to compete. And I think at a very bare minimum, they'll at least find a way to be better than Memphis. So that's why I have the Grizzlies 15th and Phoenix 14th. Uh, Not very glamorous spots to be in, but that's at least uh, my my take on it at this point. Uh, You know, from here, um, you know, 13 through 9, the the teams that fall short of the playoffs, this is really, really hard to pick as well. Um, You know, not only the teams that are going to not quite make it, but the order of them as well but i've gone ahead and i put the dallas mavericks at 13 and, you know, really, Kristaps Porzingis and Luka Doncic have the potential to be absolutely amazing. Um, but but even with what we've seen of them so far and with Luka obviously still growing, I just don't think they have what it takes to match up with the rest of the teams in the West. Um, th- that's not just a reflection of them as well. I do think the Mavericks, you know, don't quite have the depth around them just yet. So while they have promise, and this could be a team on the rise, a team to watch out for down the road, I just don't think they're quite going to be up to snuff in, the, in this deep Western conference this year. Um, one of the biggest question marks for me is, Obviously, Porzingis' health. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how he bounces back. What kind of player he's like. You know, his first time with it, with this new Mavericks team. Um, going to be very interesting to see how he does. Even if Porzingis is right back to where he was, uh, you know, during his best moments in his career in New York. Um, I still think the Mavs are at least a year away from being even playoff competitive at this point. They'll, they'll be a fun team, exciting team with Chris Epps and Luca, um, but they're just not quite there yet for me. Um, at twelve, I have the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, you know, this is when I could see them moving in either direction really um, But Caronthine Towns and Andrew Wiggins, I feel like up to this point, just have too many shortcomings I know that both and especially Kat, um are a lot more comfortable under Ryan Saunders, who who will be um, the head coach for this entire season. You know, <laughs> assuming he, he's able to keep that post, which has not been an easy thing for Timberwolves coaches to do. But my point being, you know, that they, they seem to really like Ryan Saunders. Um, he's really you know connected well with the players there, so there should be a little bit more stability. You know, I was reading some articles uh, from the Athletic, and Anthony Towns has really pointed out that he feels like Saunders and, and the freedom he'll have in Saunders' system is going to help him better reach his potential this year. Um, we'll we'll see. We'll see how that all goes, but you know honestly the Timberwolves have been quite disappointing the last few years I mean last year they were 11th in the West and and really I feel like the teams around them got better while they really did not I'm not super impressed with anything they did or added this summer um, you know, if they had added D'Angelo Russell, it might have been an exciting change, but obviously that did not come to fruition. So with the Timberwolves, I just feel like unless Anthony Towns really breaks out or or if Wiggins can finally turn the corner and be um, what what Timberwolves fans have long hoped he could be, I see them staying pretty stagnant and finishing right around where they did last year. You know, you know I mentioned last year was 11th, and this year I have him 12th. So I'm not expecting a ton out of Minnesota. Um, at 11th, here, here's a team that's a bit of a puzzle, but I have the Oklahoma City Thunder. And, you know, part of me thinks they could still be pretty good. I mean, Steven Adams has been long underrated. I'm really excited to see how him and Chris Paul coexist in the pick and roll and and what things, you know, Chris Paul can do there, assuming he does remain with the Thunder for most of or the the entire season. Um, Also, Gildas Alexander, he's the real deal. I mean, I think his second year we could see a big leap out of him. Um, Gallinari is a good vet for them to have. So there's there's some things about the Thunder that make them still appear competitive. And I think that's obviously their goal for this season. But, but really, if we're being honest with ourselves, they've just lost far too much firepower. And, and they came out huge losers in the West Arms race, where you have teams that you know added duos of, of prolific stars. Um, really, the Thunder were major losers this summer in that regard when, when they lost both Paul George and Russell Westbrook. So I, I predict it will be a bit of a bumpy year for them. Um, they may be more competitive than I have them here at, at 11th. Um, that feels like a pretty safe bet for me. Um, the Sacramento Kings, I have them at number 10. Unfortunately for them, I think they'll find themselves just outside of the playoffs yet again. Um, even, you know, sliding a little bit is where I have them for this next year. And, you know, I do like some things about the Kings. I do think that guys like Darren Fox, um, you know, are, are going to get better. Um, they have some promising pieces there. One thing to me that's so interesting about the Kings is I feel like they add players that, you know, they're, they're smart vets, they're good vets, that if they were added to a contending team, like you'd be really excited about that move. Um, But with the Kings, they tend to overpay these kind of middle of the pack guys and they're not in a spot to contend. And so then these guys that they they, they bring in and, and pay to perform there, just aren't really moving the needle much for them. And just an example, so I mean, this year they added Trevor Ariza, Corey Joseph, Dwayne Dedman, and even to an extent, Harrison Barnes. I mean, these are all guys that, you know, if Trevor Ariza had gone to, you know, a title contender, or like how we saw him in the role with the Rockets before, or if Corey Joseph had gone to be a backup for, you know, a contending team that needed some smartness and some defense in their second unit, I think you'd be really excited about adding these players. But with the Kings adding them, sure, they serve as like veteran leadership, um, but it's just not really moving the needle to make the Kings go from an outside of the playoff pack into an actual playoff team. It, it may help the, the young guys. they may serve as good mentors. But I don't think these signings get them over the hump. It's just I feel like Sacramento can't quite get it right to where they're adding the guys that are going to make you know a huge difference for them. Um, just a quick shout out. I am excited that rookie Justin James um, did make the Sacramento Kings team. You know I'm, I'm a big fan of the Mountain West Conference. Uh, you know Utah State's my number one team, but Wyoming's the team I, I grew up cheering for, and Justin James is a Wyoming alum. So happy to see he's going to be playing on the Sacramento Kings roster, and hope for big things from him. Uh, Number nine may be surprising to some of you, but I actually have the New Orleans Pelicans uh, surpassing, you know, even all these teams that I've mentioned so far. And, you know, maybe I'm buying into the Zion hype too much or, or getting too excited about young players that haven't proved themselves. Or maybe I just love Derek Favors and want to see the Pelicans do well. But honestly, between Favors and Holiday and J.J. Redick, I feel like the Pelicans have a really nice combination of promising youth and really, really good veterans as well. I think the team, you know, should be a lot of fun regardless, and they actually could be a really good team. Um, you know, they're young guys too, like Hayes and Walker Alexander looked really good in the summer league, and so there's just a lot of potential there. One thing that excites me about the Pelicans, for, for them anyway, is that you know Alvin Gentry is finally going to have you know the freedom to do what he wants to do. They put together a team with, with David Griffin there um, that really should fit his system like a glove. And no longer does Gentry have to worry about you know a disgruntled player, you know, in Anthony Davis that he had last year. And he can just coach. He can just coach the way that he wants to. And in a recent article from the Athletic, you know, he spoke about how excited he is about the team. He feels like there's a really good energy around them, a really good group that just wants to go out and compete. They're excited to see. See what drew holiday can do and in, in more of a featured role and if i'm being honest i would love to see the pelicans sneak into the playoffs um, I, I don't think they will honestly that's why i have them ninth of course um, and, and more than anything, again, I don't think this will happen at all, guys. So don't, don't think I'm predicting this one bit. But if somehow the Pelicans made it and the Lakers slipped out, I would just be through the roof excited. I'd be so happy to see that happen. But anyway, my point is that you know I feel like with uh, with all New Orleans had to go through last year, that the city of New Orleans had to go through with Anthony Davis wanting out, and just a really, really bummer of a situation with the basketball team. I'd love to see them rewarded with not just a fun team, but a team that actually makes it to the playoffs this year. Um, don't think it'll happen. Uh, I think it could happen, certainly, um, but I ha- that's why I have them at ninth. Um, then the first team I have making the playoffs um, is actually at number eight, the San Antonio Spurs. And again, they're such a confusing team in that you know, they always find a way to overachieve and outdo your expectations. So the Spurs could finish significantly higher. Um, you know, In a lot of ways, though, it's tempting to pick against them. It's tempting to say, okay, this might be the year they slip out. The West got so much better, whereas the Spurs didn't add a ton, you might say. Um, but really, I feel like Coach Popovich is just too good to bet against. Uh, the Spurs are just too sound. Um, one thing that's really they really have going for them is obviously, you know, they, they have a year now with DeMar DeRozan under their belt. that He's had a year to assimilate and adjust to the new team. And and we hear a lot about how complex uh, Coach Popovich's system is and how it really takes time for them to come together. And then a big reason why the Spurs dynasties were so successful is because they had that continuity, obviously, with, you know, with Duncan and with Parker and with Ginobili, that they were all able to have that consistency and that cohesion and really learn that system and have it ingrained in them. Um, so this isn't going to be like those teams by any means. But now that you have some continuity with DeRozan, with LaMarcus Aldridge, with Rudy Gay, all still there, um, I think we could see them take even more of a leap this upcoming year. I mean, you look at last year, and they were a dang good team. They almost beat the Denver Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs. Um, to go along with that, they added a sound guy in Damari Carroll. Um, one under the radar or, or maybe an underrated aspect that they've done is, is they're going to be bringing back to Jontay Murray, who obviously you know they're going to have to be careful with him because of health and everything. But if he's back where he was, he could be a real game changer, especially on defense. He was easily one of their, their best perimeter defenders and, and he's gonna be awesome for that Spurs team moving forward. You know, I think Lonnie Walker will be improved, Dennis White will be improved. With all those guards, Bryn Forbes might see lesser of a role, but he was really good last season and, and I think he could still earn playing time and be an impact player there as well. So with this said, I definitely think the Spurs are gonna be firmly in the playoff mix and, and protecting them eighth may end up it may end up being disrespectful to them. They may finish well higher. Um one random thought I have about the Spurs since we're on the subject is I wonder how Trey Lyles is going to do under uh, coach Greg Popovich. Um, You know, I read a recent article by Jabari Young on The Athletic where he talked about scouts having expressed a lot of doubt in Lyles being cut out for the NBA, not being sure what he brings. And one of those stated that he believes Lyles doesn't love basketball. And it's honestly not hard to see why they would think that with our experiences we saw in Utah. Some of the attitude things, obviously there was the complaining about the three-hour practices, scoffing at that sort of thing. And if he is bringing that sort of attitude to San Antonio, I mean, he's going to be lucky to ever get off the bench. Popovich isn't going to stand for that. If he's not willing to work, he's not going to get the playing time. So I still feel like Lyles has all this untapped potential. We saw really brief flickers of it in Utah, even though the work ethic and the attitude just weren't there. And it'll be interesting to see whether Lyles just warms the bench or whether Pop is able to unlock that in him and he's able to make any sort of impact. Um, anyway, that's that's enough on the Spurs. Let's move on to you know the next seed in my predictions here. Um, really, things get so hard. And they, I guess I should say they, they've already been hard and I could be off on the Spurs. But I feel like the, the teams I have remaining, the seven teams left, this is just a jungle. This could really end up any way. And I'm sure the difference between them is going to be a matter of games. It's going to be so competitive this season. But at number seven, I have the Golden State Warriors. And let me be frank with you, it feels absolutely wrong putting the Warriors seventh. It just, it just doesn't feel right at all. Uh, so I could be dead wrong, and, and even if I am right and they do finish seventh, I feel horrible for whichever team is second and has to face them in the first round. They might be the most unlucky two seed in history. Um, but you know, with that said, it's easy to see why people are counting out the Warriors. I mean, no more Kevin Durant, uh, no more Andre Godala, no more Sean Livingston. You know, guys that were all huge parts of, of their success these past few years. Um, obviously, Clay Thompson being hurt and out for a large portion of the season um, is a big reason why you know people think that their regular season record is not going to be as good as it has been, again, for obvious reasons. Um, but the one thing I'll point about the Warriors is that they've just seemed so invincible the last three seasons with Kevin Durant. But I think a lot of us, and myself included, I think we're forgetting just how good they were even before he got there. I mean, when Clay comes back, he's been an Man all throughout his career. And so assuming he can come back healthy and really not miss much of a beat, he's still going to be prolific. And, and they're still going to have that three-headed monster of Steph and, and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, um, which that core led a team that once went 73-9 in the regular season. Um, you know, Steph Curry is a former unanimous MVP. Um, I think he's going to have a lot to prove. He's going to have a massive chip on his shoulder. And, and really, I would not be surprised at all to see Steph Curry right in the thick of the MVP conversation. Um, so assuming, you know, Clay is healthy as well, these guys are going to be absolutely deadly come playoff time, and they, they shouldn't be slept on. So even with all that said, I know that was me, you know, backing up how good the Warriors still could be, there's still a reason why I have them 7th. And really, the reason for that is they lost a lot of those key depth pieces that I mentioned. And, and sure, they picked up some nice pieces as well. Um, you know, I like Willie Cully Stein for them. It'd be interesting to see what he does with a change of scenery. Obviously, jazz fans, we all love Alec Burks. Um, I've actually always been a believer in Glenn Robinson III. I know that he's underachieved thus far, um, but perhaps Steve Kerr and the Warriors can unlock his potential. And then, of course, D'Angelo Russell is a, is a really underrated addition as well. Yeah, losing Kevin Durant it hurts, and Russell doesn't replace that, but adding another star in Russell, it was a great way to bounce back from losing KD. Most people, if they lost a star like KD, they would just be out of luck. But by adding D'Angelo Russell, it was a really good step in the right direction for the Warriors to you know remain as competitive as they possibly can and as they surely will be. But anyway, there I go praising the Warriors again, right? Um, But really, I think since they lost some of those key depth pieces, it's going to hurt them next year. And that really brings me to my next point about Russell is that as good as he is, and while it was beneficial for the Warriors to add another star, um, you know, the D'Angelo Russell and Steph Curry pairing is going to be really easy for opposing teams to attack defensively. You know, neither one of them is what you'd call a strong defender. And without Klay Thompson, they're batting down the hatches on the perimeter. Um, This could be really troublesome for the Warriors. And then, of course, the other reason why I have the Warriors finishing seventh is that, you know, as good as Steph is, as good as the other guys may be, Clay's absence is definitely going to cost them victories until he's back in action. So just a quick recap, because of their backcourt defense, because of the Clay injury, and their loss of depth and loss of some of these key veterans that have helped them over the years, that's why I have them slotting to seven. But I could be dead wrong on that, especially if the D'Angelo-Russell-Steph Curry combination um, ends up working out really well. And regardless, I think this team is going to be deadly come postseason. Next, um, number six, I have the Los Angeles Lakers. And, you know, honestly, I'm not as high on the Lakers as most. And, and while I could see them finishing higher than this, I mean, it, it wouldn't shock me to see them disappoint yet again. I feel like six is pretty fair based on what we saw from them last year and what we know about just how that team is constructed. I mean, sure, maybe LeBron goes supernova and bounces back and just destroys everybody and has an incredible season after taking a lot of undue criticism last year. It's amazing because when you look at how well he individually performed, it's just crazy to see how many people are saying that he's fallen off and that he you know, is is really losing a step and all this. And while I think there is some truth to that in the effect that you know he's, he's not as good of a defender as he once was, there were times last year where he had lapses of it seemed like focus and energy Um, You know, maybe it was just the fact that, you know, the long shot making the playoffs wore on him, whatever it might, it might be. But my point is that with, with how well he statistically performed last year, he still had an incredible season. And there were a lot of factors that prevented him and the Lakers from making the playoffs beyond, you know, beyond just that, obviously his injury played a big role, but even so, I just don't think it's going to be all, you know, roses and rainbows for, for the Lakers this upcoming year. I mean, even if LeBron plays extremely well and Anthony Davis has the best year of his career, um, you know. I just have a lot of questions about the players around them. I do like Kyle Kuzma a lot, um, but I think a lot of Jazz fans are blinded to him because of his local connections. Um, he's still very much a flawed player, and I'm not saying that to be critical. I mean, every player is a flawed player to some extent, um, but I feel like is someone who struggled with efficiency. He struggled to adjusting and playing with James last year, and with Anthony Davis purportedly wanting to play more the power forward spot, there could be some more friction there as far as, well, what's Kuzma's role? How does Kuzma fit in here? And my, like I said, my biggest concern with the Lakers is, you know, outside of LeBron, Anthony Davis, w- which again, maybe if those two really go off, it won't matter. But outside of those two, there's not a lot the Lakers have that really make me believe they're going to be cohesive. They're going to be able to come together and, and be as dominant of a force as you might hope they would be. You know, I feel like with great teams you want to see where several players on the roster can contribute and make a difference. But but with the Lakers, you know, their success really just hinges on two guys, LeBron James and Anthony Davis. If those two thrive and they play like the megastars they're supposed to be, well, maybe I'll be completely wrong about them and this team will simply be unstoppable. But if one of them goes down to injury or the pieces just don't fit together, I could also see this roster imploding, uh, much like I did last year with a team that had similar issues with its supporting cast. So, in a nutshell, you know, I feel like if LeBron and Anthony Davis absolutely not even just play how they've played in past years, but somehow elevate their game to another level, then maybe the Lakers can overcome any of the shortcomings they have. I mean, we saw LeBron drag that um, really lackluster Cleveland Cavaliers team in 2016 to the finals where where they were ultimately swept. But it's going to be a lot harder to do in the West, and I I just don't know if we're going to see that same ability from LeBron to just carry a team like that. Last thing I'll say about the Lakers, I've already talked about them more than I had had expected to, but I do not envy uh, head coach Frank Vogel one bit. You know, I really like Frank Vogel. For those of you that have followed me for a while, you know that outside of the Jazz, the Indiana Pacers are my second favorite team. And I love Vogel on those Pacers teams. He got the most out of players that have been overlooked. Um, I think he's very much does a great job at connecting with the players. He's a great defensive coach. Uh, but he's in a hard spot. I mean, LeBron has kind of been known as a as a coach killer, whether that's fair or not. Um, obviously, Vogel is going to be limited in some of the shots that he calls as as far as A lot of that decision-making is going to hinge on if LeBron's happy or not and what LeBron wants, uh, which is always tough for a coach to be in. Then, of course, the way the Lakers have set this up with Jason Kidd as one of the assistants, obviously the narrative whenever the Lakers go on a losing streak is going to be, oh, should the Lakers, you know, remove Vogel and promote Jason Kidd and the media narratives are going to be absolutely absurd I don't even want to think about them, I don't want to think about how uh, Vogel's going to have to deal with those so it's going to be a drama packed season in LA um, and, you know, it's kind of weird because I, I would like to see Vogel succeed, I really think he's a stand up guy and a great coach um, but as you know, the Jazz fan of me will never allow me to help for the Lakers to have success so sorry Frank, but <laughs> I, I hope the Lakers crash and burn, um, but, but it'll be interesting to see how that all happens. Um, moving on number 5, I have the, the Portland Trailblazers And in some ways, kind of a loose connection here, but in some ways the Blazers remind me a lot of the Spurs. In that they're a team that's often overlooked and underappreciated, but they still always find a way to overachieve. I mean, for example, the Blazers, each of the past two summers, uh, people were like, okay, the Blazers are finally going to take a step back here. What did they do instead? Well, they've been the three seed now two years in a row, um, which is is really impressive for what Portland has been able to do. Interestingly enough, they made a lot of changes this summer. And, and there are concerns about a lot of things. I mean, there, there's worries about what their defensive identity is going to look like now that Mo Harkless and al Minu are gone. Um, you know, there's concerns about what version of Hassan Whiteside they're going to get from an attitude standpoint, especially when and if uh, you know, Nurkic comes back and presumably works his way back into the starting spot. Um, you know, there's also questions about which versions of, of erratic players, such as Kent Bazemore, you know, Rodney Hood, Mario Hazonia, etc. What versions of these players are they going to get? Jazz fans know very well there, there was a good hood and a bad hood in his time in Utah. Um, Kent Bazemore's kind of in the same way. He's had brilliant moments, but, but not so brilliant moments. Um, Hizonia really still hasn't found his way yet in the NBA. So these are guys that, you know, if they can have far more positive nights than negative nights, they could make the Blazers pretty impressive. Uh, but they have a lot to prove before they're, they're actually able to do that. Um, you know, really, I feel like if, if you want to decide whether Portland got better or worse this summer, it, it really depends on who you ask. Um, Neil Olshi, the general manager of the Portland Trail Blazers, believes they did great work. Um, you know, he seemed really excited about these new additions. Uh, but Evan Turner, who was traded to Atlanta for Bazemore, for example, he disputed that on Twitter. Um, the Blazers actually got worse with the adjustments they made, and there are numbers to back that up. Um, so really, you know, there's no way to know. It's going to be fun to see how they come together, and I think the Blazers are a team to watch out for. Because um, at the end of the day, you know, the Blazers may be different. They, they definitely changed some players and changed, you know, some aspects of their roster. But their two pillars, Lillard and McCollum, are the same. And as long as those two are at the helm, they're going to remain a staunch playoff team. I I firmly believe that. And the Blazers, once again, with those two in their backcourt, are certainly capable of outperforming expectations yet again this year. And they could very well grab a third straight top three seed. But I just feel like with all the question marks surrounding their new additions and with such a shift of power in the West... I feel like picking them to finish fifth is very realistic and very fair. And at the same time, maybe that one will be too high. Maybe this is the year where they do slip. You remember three years ago, they were actually just the eighth seed. Um, So while I talk about how the Blazers tend to overachieve, they've also had some moments where where they haven't necessarily. So we'll see what happens this year, uh, but definitely have them at fifth. Um, At fourth, I actually have the Houston Rockets. And this might be among the hardest teams to predict. Um, Because say what you will about James Harden and Russell Westbrook, but they're both going to be extremely motivated. They're both guys that have a love for the game, a passion for the game, and they play very hard. I know sometimes both of their antics, which they're they're very unique, um, but I know sometimes those antics can rub people the wrong way. But you can't dispute that these guys love the game of basketball, they play hard, and, and they just have a drive to win. Obviously, the fit is questionable. I mean, both players have wanted the ball in their hands. Uh, but one thing I want to note about Westbrook is that I felt like last season he did something a little bit out of character for him that actually turned out to be very fortunate for Oklahoma City. And what that is, is he deferred to Paul George a lot last season. And what was the result of that? Well, Paul George was an MVP candidate, and the Thunder played some of their best basketball that we've seen. I know some of you might be rolling your eyes right now and, and just remembering how the Thunder lost in the first round yet again. Um, but hear me out for a moment. I mean, the Thunder started out slow. But they really turned things up and there was a stretch in November and then again right before the All-Star break where they were clicking and people really thought that they were a team that could contend for a championship because Paul George was firing on all cylinders, Russell Westbrook was working extremely well alongside him, and they really looked like like I said one of the best teams in the league in a a very scary playoff matchup. I mean painful though it is to say, let's not forget that the Thunder actually swept the Jazz in the regular season series. Um, So they were very dominant as far as that matchup goes. Um, but really, what I felt like did it in for the Thunder is once Paul George's shoulder injuries cropped up and Westbrook was forced to, you know, go back into his role where he had to be the dominant ball handler and the primary scorer. Um, that was when a lot of his career-long shortcomings really reared their ugly head again. And then the Thunder started to falter, and that culminated in them losing to the Blazers in the first round. But even then, I feel like it's important to not forget that going into the playoffs, many people thought that the Thunder presented a bad matchup, um, considering that they swept the Portland Trail Blazers in the regular season. And I definitely was in that boat as well. I thought the Thunder would play very well against the Blazers, and they really didn't in the playoffs. They didn't look as good as they had during those stretches in the regular season. So, truth be told, I think that we would have seen a very different series if George hadn't been hurting and if the playoffs had taken place in late February when, like I said, Westbrook was in that more of a deferring role and the Thunder were really clicking on all cylinders. And and when I bring this up, I know I'm supposed to be talking about the Houston Rockets right now, but my point with this is that when Westbrook deferred to George, the Thunder were incredible. When Westbrook was willing to take that back seat and let George be the primary scorer, George was incredible for it and the Thunder were a great team. So if Westbrook is able to do that same thing and comfortably learn to defer to James Harden, the Rockets could be deadly. I don't think it's a stretch at all. I think most people would agree with me that James Harden is a better all-around basketball player than, than, than Paul George, minus defensively. Um, but, but if Westbrook is able to really help Harden thrive, as he did to George, that's where the Rockets could be better than some naysayers are thinking. You know, obviously, I can't stand the style of either player either. Uh, I can't stand Westbrook's inefficiency and sometimes his bullish attitude. Obviously, the antics with James Harden are so tiresome. We've seen them enough in the playoffs. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's no denying how good they are and how much trouble they give opposing players. In a lot of ways, Westbrook obviously represents an upgrade over the aging Chris Paul. Um, even if, you know, Westbrook's weaknesses are, are unique to him and they're different from Chris Paul's, including, you know, including like his poor mid range game, his overall inefficiency, I still think for the most part, he will be an upgrade. And I definitely think that with that much talent, you know, two former MVPs on that team, and a bare minimum, they're going to be a very, very good regular season team. And if they can work out the Harden-Westbrook dynamic, they could be deadly, in all honesty. Last thing, I know I've talked way too much about the Rockets already, uh, but I I low-key really liked their addition of Tyson Chandler uh, to continue to give them a solid rim-protecting presence, even with Capella resting. And I think he might be really beneficial for their bench, uh, you know, all regular season, but especially come playoff time. Uh, for the third seed, this will—I don't know—maybe this will be exciting, maybe disappointing. But I have the Utah Jazz, and to be quite honest, I just never know what to think about the Jazz. In a recent article I wrote for the you know, I talked about how they've underperformed high expectations. Uh, some of them had them as high as the number two seed last year, and that obviously didn't pan out. Their continuity didn't quite work how we had hoped or intended. And, you know, in that article, I mentioned that for the past five years, they finished well below their expected wins based on their average point differential. So, in other words, you know, based on how well they've matched up against teams, that they did not get the wins that you would assume they would. And a lot of that came from losing close games or not being able to pull out, you know, victories in clutch situations and whatnot. So, I worry that there could yet again be the risk of a letdown. Um, however, on the flip side of that, this Jazz team just looks way too good on paper. I mean, they're very well-rounded. They're very deep. Um, so much so that there's a part of me that thinks that maybe the three seed is an underestimation. And a part of the reason why I think they could be so good is that they're actually built to be incredible in the regular season. That's not to say they won't be good in the playoffs because they've really patched up a lot of their weaknesses um, from, from the last couple of years' playoffs. But really, they should be a team that's sturdy all season long because of their depth, because of their versatility and all these things. Obviously, uh, Bogdanovich and Conley are huge, um, but, but a lot of the other guys they've added as well are going to make them more... Secure and well-rounded all throughout the regular season. I think Donovan Mitchell and Royce O'Neal are going to take another significant leap. I think Joe Ingles, who is projected to come off the bench um, with with Royce O'Neal starting at the power forward spot, most likely. I think Ingles can enjoy a more suitable role for him, that he's going to be able to help torch opposing second units. He's going to have less wear and tear on his body as he'll play a few less minutes, And, and it's going to be great for him as well. All in all, to summarize the Jazz, I mean, this is a team that's already been one of the best defensive teams in the league, and now it has the pieces to be also an incredible offensive team and has one of the deepest benches in the NBA. There are a lot of people in the media that believe the Jazz could have both a top five defense and a top five offense, which certainly would put them in the championship conversation and can very easily have them at a top three spot, like I've mentioned here at number three, or perhaps even higher with with the top seed overall. But the thing here is there's a difference between, you know, a team being good on paper and a team being good in reality. And and the truth is the Jazz have to execute. They have to avoid a slow start this season, which has been a huge problem the past two years. Um, The expectations are high, they're heavy, and now it's time for them to live up to them. Uh, The last thing I'll say about the Jazz that that is really encouraging to me is that, you know, no, you can't say the Jazz have the best duo in the NBA or in the Western Conference. Um, You know, as good as Conley and Mitchell or as good as Mitchell and Gobert are, are going to be, And when you look at other rosters in the West, I mean, they don't match up to the duo of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George or the duo of LeBron James and Anthony Davis, to name a couple. But what I do like about the Jazz is that if you look at 3 through 10 on their depth charts, their third best player other than their 10th best player, I really don't think there's another roster in the West that can say that their 3 through 10 is better than the Jazz's 3 through 10 collectively. So while the, the top of the Jazz's pyramid might be slightly outmatched by some of these other teams, and again, that's not a slight because Dang, Conley-Mitchell or Mitchell-Gobert, those are great duos. Those are some great top pairs that we have. But when you look at you know, the rest of our depth and the rest of our role players, I don't see any team that is as well-rounded and as complete as we are. And I think that's really going to help the Jazz compete and be dangerous all season long. Uh, finishing up with number two, um, you know, right now the, the LA Clippers are the favorite to win the 2020 NBA championship. And even though I have them at second um, in in my projections here, the Clippers I have at number two, I do agree that they're the favorites. I mean, Kawhi just led his Raptors team to that very mark, you know, a championship uh, with the Raptors. And now he has a potent Clippers team around him, uh, as well as the ever-dangerous Paul George on his side, which means they figure to be a terrifying duo for any team to face. Um, If you've done the process of elimination, then you'll probably already realize who the remaining team left that I have is at number one. So let me connect the two by telling you why I have the Clippers at number two. The main reason why they're my front runner to win a championship, but I have them as just number two in the West, um, is because of health and load management. Um, obviously the Clippers are going to play things safe with, with, uh, with Kawhi Leonard and with Paul George, um, considering that anything less than run to the finals will look like a failure to them. And the Raptors last year, they heeded Leonard's wishes about load management, about playing time, um, you know, about letting him rest when he needed it. He ended up playing just 60 games last year, and it turned out for them magnificently. And so the Clippers are likely to do the same. I know Kawhi recently said that he was hoping to play the entire season, um, but that could just be preseason speak. I really do think the Clippers are going to manage him pretty dang close. It's also unclear how healthy Paul George is going to be to start the season due to the shoulder surgeries he underwent this summer. Um, and so that could affect them. And if we're being honest, though, you know, even if Kawhi and or PG aren't playing, the Clippers are going to be dangerous. I mean, they were a playoff team last year and they proved to be a tough matchup you know, all throughout the season. Um, but as they're careful with their two-star players, ex- expect that to result in some losses here and there, as they'll definitely be willing to give up a few losses during the regular season to make sure they're 100% focused um, and healthy for the playoffs. So with that said, I'm sure you've, you've gathered by now that the number one seed that I'm predicting are the Denver Nuggets. And kind of comparing them to the Clippers um, is exactly the reason why I have the Nuggets number one. I'll get into that in just a second. Because I, I, I feel like I might get some eye rolls and some groans from my listeners out there for picking the Nuggets to finish first overall. I know a lot of Jazz fans believe that, you know, had they been on the other side of the bracket, they would have bested the Nuggets in the playoffs. I think there's an argument for that as well. Um, I know some people think that the Nuggets maybe weren't as good as their seed indicated last year, um, but I actually think the Nuggets are a terrific team. And one thing I will say as kind of an early disclaimer is even though I predict the Nuggets will be the number one seed in the West, that doesn't mean I'm projecting them to win a championship or even make it to the NBA Finals. Um, the crazy thing about the West this year is when you look at how stacked it is, it's really feasible for just about anybody to make it to the finals come playoff time. I mean, I have the Warriors at 7th, for crying out loud, um, which just shows you how deep the West is and, and that really it's going to be a pretty open field. But with that said, I think the Nuggets are constructed to be a dangerous team. And while they're not my pick to win a championship, I definitely think they're in that championship mix. I'd put them in that, that bucket with other contenders in the Western Conference. And and the reasons for that and the reasons why I have them as the number one seed is you look at them and and they just barely missed that top seed last year with 54 wins. You know, they were really neck and neck with the Warriors and even ahead of them at some points um, for almost the entire season. They didn't close out the year very well last year, which I think is why some people might be doubting them a little bit this year. But really, they were solid all season long. Um, I, I will point out the Jazz did learn last year that banking too hard on continuity can be dangerous. Um, but in the case of the Nuggets, I do think by not changing much this offseason, they're actually on a really good track. I think that they're going to be an improved team next year. I think that they're going to have young guys like Jokic, like Murray, like Harris. Um, that are going to improve. They have that playoff experience under their belts now, and they're only going to get better. I think Jeremy Grant was a very much under-the-radar addition who helped patch up some weaknesses the Nuggets had. And then who knows, maybe an X-factor like Michael Porter Jr. or Bull, Bull <laughs> for of all people, might step up. But even if they don't, just as how the, the Nuggets were last year and how they've been able to keep that continuity, I think they're going to be a very good team. But the main reason why I wanted to talk about the Clippers and the Nuggets in conjunction with one another is that, you know, with the Nuggets... They're a team that, unlike the Clippers or the Lakers, they don't have players with a history of utilizing load management. They don't have players that have needed a ton of rest. You know, they're a pretty youthful team for the most part. Maybe Paul Millsap will be held out a couple games, you know, for for age and resting purposes. Uh, but for the most part, the Nuggets are a group made up of young guys that are going to compete and bring it every single night. They just don't have the need to rest players as much as like the Clippers or the Lakers may need to do. And for that reason, while I could see the Clippers and the Lakers taking some losses that you wouldn't maybe expect, I think the Nuggets are going to remain at full strength, you know, you know, barring any unforeseen injuries, obviously. But I think the Nuggets are going to remain pretty much at full strength all year, and that's going to be a huge reason why they will be able to take that top seed this year. With the Warriors out of the way... The Nuggets, you know, will have a really good chance at snatching that, which they were so close to getting last year. And of all the teams in the West that may think about resting players or doing the whole load management buzzword that I keep saying – I think the Nuggets will be the team that's the, the least affected by that, which is a big reason why I think they're going to enjoy the most regular season success and find themselves atop the Western Conference standings come April. The other thing that can not be overlooked with the Nuggets is that they enjoy one of the best home court advantages in the league. I mean, last year they had the best home record in the entire NBA at 34-7. and seven. And so really my point here is that they are designed to be an amazing regular season team between, you know, the fact they won't have to rest much, the fact that they're way better than I feel like they get credit for sometimes, the fact that their home court... Is just so deadly, and they're just so good playing in Denver. I think they really have a great shot to hit that number one seed. That said, you know, I don't personally think they're to the point where they can go all the way in the playoffs. I, I think they are a championship-contending team, um, but ultimately, I, I think there's three or four teams that come postseason time will be too tough for them to overcome. Uh, but maybe I'll be wrong, and, you know, definitely there's that that possibility. But also, I think they're going to be dang competitive no matter who they face all season long. So, just quick recap: I'll, I'll start from the bottom and go back up to the top. I have uh, the Memphis Grizzlies 15th, the Phoenix Suns 14, Mavericks 13, Timberwolves 12, Thunder 11, Kings 10, Pelicans 9, Spurs 8, Warriors 7, Lakers 6, Blazers 5, Rockets 4, Jazz 3, Clippers 2, and Nuggets 1. Uh, feel free to keep, keep uh, tabs on this and let me know how poorly I did come season's end, but those are my projections for the Western Conference standings this upcoming year. Now, after a quick message, we'll do point number three. Point three. Okay, point number three, I promise to keep this one brief since I know we talked about the Western Conference standings for quite a while. Um, but there's something I talked about a lot that last segment um, that I wanted to bring up here, and that is load management. Really, for this final thought here, I want to talk about you know playoff seeding in the West and this, this idea of load management. And, and you know, one of the reasons why the West has become so hard to predict this summer is that outside of the fact that there were a ton of changes, uh, the teams are really, really good and evenly matched, and of course, because of there's, there's always unpredictable things like injuries or different drama or chemistry issues. One of the other reasons why the West is so hard to predict is because load management is becoming all the more prevalent. I think we're gonna see a lot of it this year, especially after how well it worked with Kawhi. You know, the NBA has always been known as a copycat league and, and if one team does something that works well, the others try to adopt it. And so because I think there's going to be teams that are going to rest and really manage the playing time and the number of games their star players play to keep them fresh for the playoffs, that could change how many games they win and really affect the seeding in the NBA. You know, we could have teams like like the Lakers, for example, I had them at sixth, but maybe that sixth seed comes largely because they're doing this load management with James and Davis, but then come playoff team, maybe they're going to be, you know, head and shoulders the best team in the West. I don't know. I, I, I guess we'll find out. But that's where the load management and the resting of players and the managing these injuries, or injury concerns, maybe I should say, that's where it really has a big impact on how teams are going to perform. Obviously, load management is nothing new. I mean, we've seen the Spurs do this throughout the years. We've seen LeBron James do this while he was in Cleveland and, and to some extent in Miami. But I mean, don't be surprised if we see like the Blazers try to do this a little more with Lillard and McCollum, and maybe the Jazz even could with Gobert with and Conley. And I can definitely see the upside of really focusing on load management and making sure your players are at their ultimate peak for the playoffs. Um, Even if it is somewhat disgruntling for fans that just want to see the best players on the floor every night and they want to see players that, you know, want to constantly compete no matter what. Um, But one thing that I think is most interesting about load management overall and that, that I wanted to address here is that in some ways I feel like it reinforces a narrative that's been pretty prevalent over the past few years. And that narrative is that the regular season doesn't matter. I mean, that's something we hear all the time, you know, that notion that as long as a team qualifies for the playoffs, as long as you're top eight in your conference, it doesn't matter that much because then it's a, it's a new season. You have, you know, an even chance of making it to the finals, hypothetically. Um, I mean, you could point to the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers as, as an argument to back that up, considering they were the fourth seed and still went all the way to the NBA finals, even though some thought maybe since they were, you know, fourth in the regular season, they might finally be outmatched. Um, but honestly, I disagree pretty strongly with the notion that the regular season and seeding doesn't matter. First of all, you know I think there's something to be said for a team that wants to go out and put forth its effort each and every night. Uh, you know If you're able to maintain competitiveness and focus on game 62 on a Wednesday night in Phoenix, uh, then likely you're going to have the discipline to be focused and ready for a grueling playoff series. And really there's just something to be said about preparation, consistency, chemistry, and all those factors that go into winning regular season games all year long that then translate into postseason success. If you get too used to complacency in the regular season, I really feel like that can bleed into the into the playoffs as well. Um, which just you know, without having any concrete numbers there to back that up, I feel like that just is a is a from a human experience and motivation and emotional standpoint, uh, definitely is, has an impact as far as you know why the regular season is important. Um, but even more than that, you know, one big reason why I think the regular season and seeding matters is because history clearly tells us that it does. Um, I actually decided to take a look back at some past seedings uh, well before I even thought about talking about this. It was just kind of on a whim. I wanted to look into it. And when I saw some of the the numbers and some of the things I discovered, they they were really, really eye-opening to me. And I wanted to share those here. Uh, um, Namely, so since 1947, so in the last 73 NBA seasons, of all the teams to make it to the NBA Finals, 51% of those have been number one seeds. Uh, Bump that up to number one seed to number two seeds, and 85% of all teams that make it to the NBA Finals, that's where they finished either a one or a two seed. Um, If we look at the West specifically, in the last 10 years, there's been only one Finals team that was below a two seed. That was the 2011 Dallas Mavericks, who were a three seed. All time, only two number four seeds, which was the 1978 Seattle Supersonics and the 2006 Dallas Mavericks, have made the Finals in the West, and neither of them won the championship and only twice have there been uh, teams from the West that were six seeds to make the finals. That was the Houston Rockets both times, surprisingly, uh, both in 1981 and 1995, and they did win the championship in 1995. Um, No eight seed has ever made the finals in the West, and no five or seven seed has ever made the finals in either conference, which is bad news for the Jazz, who've been the five seed the last three years running now. So hopefully hopefully they can buck that trend and not be the five seed again. Um, the East, I'll admit, is a little bit different um, if we apply this notion, just because in recent years, with LeBron's reign in the conference, there's actually only been two number one seeds that have made the finals and two number four seeds that have made the finals in the last 10 years, even though neither of those number four seeds won but that has that has a, a lot less to do with the balance of power and a lot more with the eastern conference just being bad this last decade and LeBron James meeting little resistance in the east because if we look historically again as i mentioned you know one and two seats have dominated the east just like they have in the west and again i go back to that number that you know in the last 73 seasons 85 percent of the teams that have played in the finals have been either a one or a two seed. And, and getting back to the West, I know that that's what we want to focus on here. If you really look back at the list, it really it's 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 incredible. It's a one seed, two seed, one seed, two, almost all one seeds, but then there's two seeds scattered in there as well. And like I said, the 85% of the teams in the whole NBA that have played in the finals have been a 1 or a 2 seed. That number is identical in the Western Conference. 85% of teams that have played in the finals in the Western Conference have been a 1 or a 2 seed. So, in other words, if you're able to hit that 1 or 2 spot, then your odds of making it to the finals shoot up astronomically. And to get that top seed, you obviously have to perform in the regular season. Which my point is, the seeding matters and the regular season matters. And really, to me, that's a big reason why I'm not overly confident in the championship odds of a team like the Lakers. Uh, I mean, LeBron might have been able to coast into the postseason and even into the finals in the East, but the West is a completely different animal. If you finish under the four seed, and honestly, even the four seed hasn't had much success once they get to the finals either. Only one four seed has ever won a championship, and that was the nineteen sixty nine Boston Celtics. So, if you finish under that four seed, then, then you're more than likely going to have to play three series without home court advantage. Maybe you can get the one upset, you know, but to expect to get three in a row is going to be so challenging. Um, especially with how deep the West is. So, I mean, sure, hypothetically, what I said at the beginning of this segment is that any seed can make it to the finals. I mean, back in 1999, we saw the eight-seeded New York Knicks make it to the finals. Um, you know, in fairness, that was a little fluky. They, they weren't a typical eight-seed, and then they, they did lose in the finals. Um, but history has shown that it's incredibly advantageous to have that one or two spot. And, and yes, I do realize that, you know, before a lot of this notion of load management and resting came about, um, the one or 2 seated team was simply the best. So it's expected if you're the best, then you're going to have the best chance of making it to the finals. But but my point is, even recent history, when there's been more of this resting and more of this, hey, if I'm the three or the four or the 5 seed, it doesn't matter because if I'm the most talented team come playoff time, I, I still have an equal chance to make it into the finals. I don't buy that. It's still really, really proven that the one or the two seed has the best chance to make it to the NBA Finals, and part of that is because they have won all regular season long. They, they've put in the work, they put in the best effort, but also having the home court advantage for you know potentially three rounds, maybe even the finals, if you're that number one seed, it really does make a big difference. So in short, you know, my whole point for looking at some of those numbers is that I really feel like seeding is important and it's something that Jazz need to pay attention to. I mean, even look at this past year. I mean, we could argue that, you know, the Jazz were better than your typical five seed. But guess what? The Houston Rockets were definitely a lot better than your typical four seed. And so the Jazz, because they did not really meet their potential of getting on the other side of the bracket by getting the three or the two seed, it really cost them. Um, On all honesty, it cost the Rockets as well because – Well, I think everyone would agree that really the Warriors were probably the best team in the league. I'd also say that the Houston Rockets were the second best team, even though the seeding didn't tell that. Uh, Instead, the Rockets, instead of being able to wait an extra round to play the Warriors, had to play them in the second round as the four seed matched up against the one, and they lost. So for both the Jazz and the team that beat them, the Rockets, seeding ended up being really important, and both teams missed opportunities by not finishing at a better seed. So in conclusion, you know, I really feel like the regular season matters more than we sometimes give credit to it for. And, and yes, it does make sense to be cautious, and it may make sense to rest players here and there when it's sensible. And definitely, you know, being ready for the playoffs is the most important thing. You don't want to go out there and try to get the number one seed and then get to the playoffs with all your players hurt. Obviously, that that's stupid. Um, but I feel like if a team is too focused on load management and resting, you know, a team like the Lakers or the Clippers, and they end up getting that five or six seed, I think eventually it's gonna catch up to them. It's gonna make it so much harder for them, one, to have that consistency and that continuity that you need to perform in the playoffs, and two, just because you're going to have to be taking on teams without that home court advantage within the playoffs could make a huge difference. As I alluded to earlier, you know, I, I really feel like there's something to be said for gaining that consistent competitiveness, having that grind and that focus where you're going hard all 82 games and you just get in the habit of expecting nothing less than winning because then once you get into the playoffs you have that same expectation. It's not, a, well, that game didn't matter that much because you know we're already, in the play, we're already gonna make the playoffs so it doesn't matter if we get a few losses here and there. If you can erase that mindset from your mind and shoot for the highest seed possible and have that mentality going to the playoffs, I definitely think it goes a long way. So, you know, concluding this with the Jazz, earlier I projected them as a three seed, um, which would be a great spot and would actually give them a decent shot for making it to the finals based on historic numbers. There have been seven teams in the Western Conference that have made it to the finals as a three seed, and actually four of those seven, ironically, have won it all. They've won the championship. Um, But that said, I I definitely think it's important that the Jazz really lock in and and try to get that one or two seed um, because it's just going to, you know, history tells us that's going to astronomically raise their odds of making it to the finals. And just what I really try to hit home here is that I really feel like the regular season is far more important than the typical narrative tells you that it is. We hear so much about how seeding in the regular season don't matter, um, but I don't believe that one bit, and I hope the Jazz don't view it that way. Maybe they, like I said, they may rest a little bit on some of their key players to make sure they're good for the playoffs but I hope that doesn't become a habit because I think it'll be really costly come playoff time. If the Jazz sink to the 5 seed like they have the past past 3 seasons because of, you know, injuries or not reaching up to expectations, I think it's going to really put a huge damper on their championship odds, especially where they're not the favorite as it is. They're going to need a lot of things to go right, and one of those things is probably going to be getting that home court advantage for as long as possible. Anyway, I, I, I'm sorry to go on a soapbox there, but I, I hope you guys see the point there of how intriguing it is that one and two seats have historically been so much more successful, and really the regular season is important. Um, anyway, that's all I have for today, folks. I'm uh, really excited to have you guys tune in. Like I said, have some exciting episodes ahead. Um, in a future episode, I'll be diving in the same way into the Eastern Conference with some of the big surprises and, and the um, projections there for the standings. Also, still want to talk about, you know, jazz lineups, and then have some really good guests lined up to talk about some of the new jazz players that'll be coming up in future episodes as well. So make sure you keep listening. You can find everything um, you know on the iTunes store. Also be sure to follow the J Notes on Twitter and check out all our articles at the JNotes.com. We're gonna be sure to be keeping you up to date on the jazz all summer long and well into the season. Anyway, thanks again for listening, you guys. Until next time, go jazz!